0: Hello and welcome to the Australia-Indonesia Centre and our first in conversation for 2020. It's great to have you with us today for our first discussion for the year and in fact we're going to hold these on a regular basis tapping into our network of experts and researchers across both countries and the region to talk about the issues that really matter. Now, for those of you that have joined, we have muted your sound and your video just so that we can uh, manage our guest speakers and we don't lose them. So uh, if you're trying to turn back those functions, don't worry about it. We've got it covered here. And we are going to allow for questions. We don't have the chat up at the moment. We'll definitely be putting that up on board a little bit later for you. We have, of course, already got some questions in the system, which is fantastic. We'll answer some of those and we'll try and get to you uh, as many of those questions as possible. So let's have an introduction to our speakers Aditya Utami is co-founder of the Think Policy Society. The Think Policy Society is a community of young professionals that works for creative policy solutions based on empathy and evidence. Afu, as she likes to be called, also works at the World Bank as an environmental economist. And I must point out that uh, Afu is here in her capacity with the Think Policy Society and is very kindly giving us her time today. Thank you, Afu. Our second guest today is Professor Nanung Nuyatono. Now, Professor Nunung is the Dean of Economics and Management at Bogor's IPB University. He's also a member of Indonesia's National Research Council from 2019 to 2022, so still is. His research is focused on development economics, microfinance, and public policy. And our third speaker, of course, is our one and only Kevin Evans, uh, director in Jakarta for the Australia-Indonesia Centre. His 25-plus years of experience of living in Indonesia and working with various institutions means that he has deep insight into what's happening in that country. He's worked there as a diplomat stockbroker government advisor, academic, and much more. And I should say 35 years, not 25. Apologies, Kevin. Now, we thought that it was important to discuss uh, the coronavirus and the impact that it's having on our region. And also, there are many, many roads we can go down with this um, pandemic. What do we discuss? And we will be looking at some other avenues in further discussions What we wanted to look at today was the economics um, because obviously this is a health crisis that's turned into an economic crisis as well. Now, as you know, the President, Joko Widodo, has uh, asked people to stay at home, work from home, um, do social distancing measures. He shut down places of entertainment such as cinemas, um, any and encouraging people to pray from home. We, Of course, we had the finance minister, Sri Mulyani, introduce a range of economic measures, which we will discuss. And everywhere, you know, there are questions about is the Indonesian government doing enough or is any government doing enough? Governments around the world are being questioned about the measures they're taking to try and protect people's health and keep an economy going. And that is not an easy task. So. To start off our conversation, I thought it would be great just to get an idea on the ground from our guests of what's actually happening in their neighbourhood. What are they seeing in Indonesia? And then we can have a think about, is it similar to what we're seeing in Australia? And Kevin, I can see you're on screen. So I'll ask you first, what are you seeing in your neighbourhood?
1: Well, I've been asking some of my Odjek and Godjek friends how they're surviving. Uh, A number are now staying at home. Those who are on the road are finding fewer passengers. And I'm surprised, actually, even the food delivery applications, even the amount of orders they've got are are down. Uh, Other poorer friends and relatives are now beginning to ask for a bit of help. So I think the traditional social safety net that people have relied on through family and friends is now beginning to uh, kick in. But there may be some additional stresses this time on relying on that as we were able to do during the Asian financial crisis. But I think we'll get into that later.
0: Mm.
1: But we've got blue sky.
0: That's good. (laughs) But Afu, how about you? What are you seeing as a young Indonesian?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we've been... um I think uh, on social media, we can see that people are started uh, starting to get bored of working from home because we're entering the fourth week. Uh, but I think being bored is the least of, of the kind of problems that we're actually seeing. And as you said, the, the health crisis has actually turned into an economic crisis and affected the most vulnerable uh really deeply um and i think so similar to kevin um i've also been talking to not only the object drivers uh which is i guess more salient and kind of on top of our mind but also people working in salons people working in restaurants the cafes that needs to be shut down uh, and some uh employers that need to let go some of their uh, workers so this i mean around even. You, you know among uh, in, in the neighbourhood we've we've been talking about that as well, and thinking about how the government can um can put in economic measures that can help uh, reduce some of those risks.
0: Hmm. Thank you and uh, Professor Nanong, can you let us know what you're saying
3: Thank you Helen. Uh, as I'm working in the university uh since our university implement partial equation, meaning that uh, most of our students went back home. So, we can see in the impact, like, for example, in canteen, warung surrounding university, drastic, uh, canteen in the university closed down, warung surrounding university uh, drastically, their onset is decreased. So, we can see in the impact of uh, COVID-19. Uh, meaning that uh, because all students, uh, as well as lecturers, working from home, so will impact uh, on the economy surrounding campus, so it is again uh, a big uh, problem, and then we have to face that uh, immediately. We we see that uh, the impact of the corona virus or COVID nineteen is not just only <clears throat> in the economic activity as usual, but also in the campus itself. Uh, the daily activities also change. Uh, now we are using uh, online media giving a lecture, exam, and things like that.
0: Thank you. And Bhatnan Nung, we'll stay with you because there are, of course, when people think about a financial crisis and, and Indonesia, one of the first things that comes to mind is the financial crisis of 1998, Chris Monia. How do you compare what happened in 1998 to what you're seeing now? How is it different?
3: Yeah, uh, in nineteen ninety eight, it was uh, due to the monetary crisis. Then uh, the impact really um, heavy on the a certain group of, of economic uh, groups. Like for example, like for example, uh, at the time the economic activity is still on the street. Like for example, there are many informal sector uh, still also serve the people. Uh, if then then it's very different uh, because uh, nowadays the impact of economy not just only hit a certain or particular sector but also all sectors has an impa- uh, has an influence uh, by the COVID nineteen. So this is a, a big challenge and big difference between ninety uh, ninety eight and uh, twenty twenty due to the COVID uh, nineteen. So therefore we need more. High effort and serious effort, as I mentioned, to you uh, the impact is from um, the impact also hit uh, micro, um, micro and medium enterprises. When the crisis in 1998, uh, small, micro and medium enterprises was as a big bone of our economy. The informal sector are there, and then the consumption is still keep maintained. But we can see now is very different. The uh, warung also decreased in the their onset. So the the impact on the uh, micro, small and medium enterprise is quite also high. Not just only in the big company, but also uh, the informal sector. So again, we have to look on on that uh, issue. That this is uh, different uh, different uh, circumstances in 1998 and to 2020. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you for that. And lovely to see your son, by the way. (laughs) It's a new working from home, hazard. (laughs) Back to some of the serious points that you've raised, and and perhaps we'll pick up on Chris Mon and comparisons a bit later on in the conversation, but Kevin Evans has been doing a bit of research, um, looking at some economic historical data and also what is happening now. And Kevin, could you give us, uh, I guess, an overview of what you see happening in Indonesia and Australia and, and other parts of the world in terms of the uh, economic hit that is being taken?
1: Well, I think the first point to note is that, is that we're seeing an unprecedented downgrade in projected rates of growth. Uh, so I've done a little bit of work with the G20 economies, working on some work put together by the Economist Intelligent Unit. So it indicated they were projecting at the late 2019 that this year we'd have a, a kind of a balmy global expansion of 2.3%. This has now been revised within a couple of months to say a global contraction of 2.2%. That, that's a, a tremendous change in an incredibly short period of time, a 4.5% shift basically in global projections. Now, the, the G20 nations represent 85% of the world economy. So that, that's why I've, I've given a bit of a focus there. So you can see on the chart here that the the regions of the Americas and, and Europe are looking to see the sharpest downgrades in growth. They're saying that they're suggesting at this stage that the only areas expected to see any sort of growth are the three big Asian nations of uh, China, India, and Indonesia. However, I personally think that there's still more prospects of a risk on the downside, not the upside. And it was very interesting to note last week that Indonesia's finance minister. Sri Mulyani indicated that we could look at the possibility here, even in Indonesia, of a contraction. Could we take a look at the at the the next chart, which I think clears away most of the others and leaves us with a sharper focus on Indonesia and Australia, if that chart was available? Uh, so when we when we see this, or when we do look at this chart, what it's showing actually is that both Australia and Indonesia will be somewhat less. Uh, impacted in terms of downgrades on economic growth and elsewhere even so the likely actual performance uh, will sh- will be the worst that Indonesia's produced since the Asian financial crisis of 1980 uh, 1998 and in fact for Australia we have to go back to 1983 to look at a contraction of the of the scale that we're looking to now so really serious stuff
0: mm. Uh, Quite sobering statistics and, you know, as we know, just probably at the start of understanding what's happening. Um, Alfu, if I can go to you just for a a different perspective, a young Indonesian who has known democracy, who has known economic growth, is part of a cohort that have great aspirations for the country um, and are looking to improve their lives and the lives of those around them. What are you seeing um, or what questions are your friends and colleagues asking at this time about the economy and what's happening to it?
2: Yeah, I think on the general population, you know, the young people on social media and just in general have this sense of uh, basically a looming sense of uncertainty and inaction from the government in terms of what they're working on to as a response to this, uh, I guess, health crisis and economic crisis so in a way even though i mean we know that on the news the government's uh, been releasing this economic package and and uh, all these different measures i think there's a great sense of um insufficiency like the, the i think the perception of of the public or the young people especially is that the government of indonesia is not doing enough uh there are a lot of questions or or demands for some kind of more strict um health measures or or, or um, kind of uh, economic activities limitation measures, like a lockdown or partial lockdown. There are some demands on how the government maybe should strict Ramadan-related movement going back to, um, you know, hometowns, because that can potentially also spread the disease from Jakarta, which is the epicenter at the moment. Um, so there's been a lot of um uh uneasiness or or worry around what the government's actually doing, and this might speak more to how the government's communicating what they're working on as uh as opposed to you know actual inaction, but at the same time they're also you know feeling of um again that the government's not doing enough tests on the ground that we maybe the data that we're seeing in terms of number of infected uh people are not are, are uh an underreporting situation, you know. So there are some numbers comparing how other countries are doing in terms of number of tests uh, conducted, and Indonesia is pretty low on that list. So I think young people and and, and the general populace in uh, uh, at large also think that the government can do more in terms of doing some testing. But on the positive side, I guess um, you know to to feel a little bit more optimistic. As a result of that um, feeling that the government's not doing enough, I think some people, communities are are doing are trying to contribute themselves, are trying to take some of the matters to their own hands, I think, in, in a way, um, through several things, you know, starting from actually, you know, making donations uh, through online platforms. Um, There's some statistics showing that, you know, around 3 to 5% of millennials are used to making donations on website. Um, so... I think um you know uh platforms like Kitabisa, WeCare and so on have, have have started seeing you know these large donations of billions of rupiah coming from young people and general populace alike um to make masks to make protective uh, suits and 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 actually directly uh, helping the people in need just through um, uh, logistical support uh, food and, and uh, cash uh, for, for these people um, and at the same time I think some people who are um, people on social media have started also a movement to kind of tip your object drivers more uh, if you order uh, food or, or anything like that. Um, and now they've increased the cap from, what well, before, maybe around $1 um, to now up to like $20. So you can you can donate uh, a lot more. Um, and also the most exciting one, I think, is this like buy your object uh, driver lunch movement where you pretend like you're ordering uh, go food, but at the end you ask the object driver to actually take the food for, for themselves and I um, And I, I think it's it's quite encouraging to see that, you know, there's this uh, Movement or like self-reliance to some extent that the community is trying to to help each other Beyond what the government beyond the economic packages that the government's uh, preparing
0: mm. Thank you. That's really interesting, especially that civil movement, which is strong in Indonesia, that sense of the community needs to step in here. There's a gap and and we need to help out. So, Professor Nanong, if I can go to you then. Um, Afu's mentioned some of the, that the government has taken some measures and I'll I'll just refer to my notes to make sure I've got this correct. There is about uh, $40 Australian dollars announced in total so far. Um, Rupee of $405.1 trillion. And the Finance Minister, Sri Mulyani, announced some extra measures following Joko Widodo's, the President's announcement. Now, part of these measures include uh, a budget for the pre-employment card program that will be sufficient to cover 5.6 million laid-off workers, informal workers and micro and small business owners. There are two tax measures to help the manufacturing sector there are some economic recovery programs, including credit restructuring and financing for small and medium-sized businesses. And there's even uh, in the Inapurpu, which was the, the President's decree, um, allowing the ability for the debt to GDP to increase. What do you make of these measures? Are they going to have an impact? Are they having an impact? Will they be enough?
3: First, the important effort should be directed how government uh, flattening the curve is very important. Since uh, if the effort the government to flattening the curve is not happening, then it would be a serious problem. Even there are huge money uh, to be uh, fiscal stimulus uh, for different uh, purposes. So that's why, like, in, in rupiah, there are around 75 trillion uh, rupiah directed for the health recovery and then for the protective equipment. Uh, this is very important for the frontline doctor, nurse, and other uh, voluntary people, young people that really can uh, in hand uh, trying to uh, battle COVID-19. Uh, once we success to reduce the spreading of covid-19 then we uh, simultaneously we can start to provide a different uh, fiscal policy like for example as 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 also stated uh, how important the uh, social safety net around 110 trillion rupiah will be directed for the uh, social safety net it is very important since there are also still Around nine percent people below poverty line, and moreover, it's also still around. uh, Let's say nine million people, or five of uh, five percent, living in extreme poverty. So this is very important. It is almost similar with 1998 when there's when the crisis hit the economy. Then the number of poor people will increase. So that's why. Quick response from the from the government should be needed, not just only in uh, by central government, but also local government is, uh, can can work together with with the central government. Another important point is like uh, tech incentive and the uh, credit for the uh, call it uh, credit usa rakyat uh, It is also very important, as I mentioned, to you in nineteen ninety eight. Small, micro, uh, medium business uh, is very important. Now they really influence and uh, have a big impact uh, by COVID nineteen. So that's why the relaxation of the and the flexibility of uh, medium, uh, uh, of small and micro enterprise uh, paying a loan is very uh, important and needed. And also the the one hundred fifty trillion program from the government to recover economy. So we have to again see if, the, if this all uh, fiscal stimulus really targeted to the people. The question is that whether uh, the people that needed to uh, have this kind of assistance is received uh, a certain number that government plan. So how government can make sure that the targeted people is uh, really benefit from the uh, fiscal policy stimulus, and when we see the different uh, action taken by uh, G20 uh, countries, it's almost similar. Like for example, how we can uh, put a, a certain amount of money to uh, fund for, for the health and economic recovery for medium small enterprises, and as well as for uh, relaxing the credit. And the important question is that uh, you rise as in Perpu, that government just I think yesterday the Ministry of Finance met with the Parliament asking about uh, the the approval uh, of the deficit um, the, the, the deficit uh, above three percent of GDP. Uh, it is again uh, very important if we just trick three percent uh, from the GDP. Then the fiscal room of, from, from uh, the fiscal room of the government is very tight so by relaxing the deficit uh, until two thousand and twenty uh, three then the government have uh, enough room to maneuver and then to give a stimulus of uh, economy. but again the question is how government really can target it all the program to the people that are needed uh, for the assistance. I believe that the number of poor people in Indonesia will increase. Indonesian government have a target to make a zero extreme poverty by 2024. Of course, this program will be delayed for a bit because uh, all economic sector hit by the COVID-19. Yeah, to me, again, uh, all sectors, all government institutions, so uh, make sure that the program is uh, on target. This is my, my response related to uh, the uh, fiscal stimulus just issued by the government.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you, Professor Nanong. And Kevin Evans, you've also been doing some numbers based on uh, the government's announcements around the kind of fiscal stimulus and, and help that it hopes to put out into the community. Perhaps could you just take us through and show us how those, um, how that program stacks up against what you're seeing economically?
1: Okay, well, I think the first point to note, and this would underscore what uh, Pat Nunung said before, Uh, this particular economic crisis is unlike others we've faced before. It wasn't caused by some fundamental integrity or other flaw in the financial system. It wasn't caused by some traditional cyclical imbalance in the macroeconomy the basic cause of this economic crisis has been an unprecedented collapse in discretionary consumption and income, especially at the household level and and a a connected incapacitation of production and a breakdown in supply chains. So the the basic velocity of of economic activity has been reduced dramatically. So given the centrality of households to this economic crisis, uh, any public financing program needs to address this challenge. And I actually believe that the package announced through the emergency uh, government regulation you mentioned before, the purple, uh, of the 31st of March, I think contains an appropriate focus there. So it's valued, as you mentioned before, at $40 billion. Uh, This includes a doubling of the health budget, uh, $11 billion for poor households. Now, what's an interesting point there for Indonesia is that going back 20 years, actually the country did not have the administrative architecture, to actually provide money to individual poor people. Uh, Poverty programs tended historically to be defined in a geographic, so backward regions or poor regions, rather than as poor citizens. And so uh, when they doubled the price of fuel in 2005, actually they at the same time created, or or what I say, they gave birth to Indonesia's social, uh, social welfare system. So it was it was a dramatic transformation of of using public funds to actually support individual poor people. So the programs that they're targeting are actually two pre existing social safety net programs. So that's really an important uh, an important uh, administrative piece of architecture that exists and can easily be ramped up. They don't have to invent and start from scratch to create something. So I think that will be a very helpful thing to ensure a fast. Rollout. Of course, the number of people to be affected is going to increase dramatically, particularly in some of those uh, services sectors that are now being closed down, whether it's tourism, restaurants, transport, and so forth. Uh, but at least there is a basic mechanism that exists administratively, financially, and so forth for that to operate. So that's important. There'll also be some support to small and medium enterprises uh, that Pat Noonong also outlined plus some uh, tax relief, so I see in that that there's been a reduction. Uh, they're reducing corporate tax rates uh, by quite uh, by uh, from 25 down to 20 percent over the next couple of years. So that's uh, that's uh, 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 important uh, elements. Um, whether it's enough? A, yep. Sorry.
0: I was going to say I think you had a chart. Was it um, chart number two? I was looking at one of your charts, Kevin. Right. I think that gives us a bit of a, a picture of what's going on perhaps. Sure.
1: Okay. So we could look at – okay. So what we're looking at there is I created – back 20 years ago when I was on the stock market, I created a kind of a, a snapshot way of identifying which country was most badly affected in terms of what loss to wealth did that society suffer as a result of the Asian financial crisis. So I've used the same kind of formula here, basically taking the stock exchange indices of, of major market economies around the region – Converting them into US dollars, taking a a starting point being before a crisis emerges, and then sometime later. So, the picture you've got there in front of you now is only three months into this crisis. So, we're not over it yet. This isn't the end of the game. And so, what it's actually showing is just how much you've lost. So, if I put $100 into each of these markets just before the crisis, so the end of last year, so before anybody was seriously looking at the impact of COVID, so looking at all of these market economies across the region, What you've got left now is my $100. uh, I've still got $82 in Japan. When you're looking at the other end, the most affected as at the end of March was actually Australia, Thailand and Indonesia. So we've lost $35 in Australia. We've lost uh, $39 in Indonesia. Uh, We're still in the middle of the crisis. So these numbers will change and change rather sharply. But it's interesting to see just what we're suffering now. Maybe if we could... Show that other other chart, which looks at the end uh, of the Asian financial crisis, which is a lot more shocking, particularly from an Indonesian perspective. So this this shows what happened. So prior to the beginning of the Asian financial crisis, um, and then I bought my $100 on each of these markets, and then I sold them about a year and a bit later. So after the dust had settled and so forth, We looked at Australia did the best out of that. So Australians still had 74% of their wealth. Indonesians were left with $9. Now, in a practical sense, obviously, markets are rather hyper-responsive and often tend to overreact, of course. But if you look at, the, at things like property prices, even those defi- uh, declined dramatically. At a personal, uh, my personal uh, experience, I was dumb enough to buy a property here in, in Indonesia just before the crisis, thinking this will pass, no problems. And I, I think it was about $150,000 American. At about that time, it was left at about $40,000. So that was actual real prices. Uh, but so the, what I'm showing you here was actually on the equities market, which are much more responsive uh, to these kinds of changes. So Mm. the impact is significant in terms of what that actually leaves a society. And Mm. uh, the devastation that Indonesia suffered during the Asian financial crisis was was reflected there. And so many lessons were learned uh, from that period that, uh, interestingly enough, when the global financial crisis struck 10 years later, uh, a lot of the fundamental flaws in governance, fundamental flaws in finance systems and integrity systems had been redressed to the point uh, that actually Indonesia and, and Australia too in many respects, but particularly Indonesia, sailed through the global financial crisis, barely skipping a beat. So it's the losses that, that you saw there were nothing like that. But this time, uh, we're still fairly early in, but it, uh, it seems that uh, uh, we've got some bad times ahead of us.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Your charts are always uh, stark, to say the least. Um, And a good explainer, I'm going to open the floor to questions very shortly. Uh, We have got one, as I said, we've got some questions that came in um, yesterday. I'm going to take one of those now because I think it's relevant to what we've been discussing. Uh, This is from Ben Bland, the Research Fellow and Director of the Southeast Asia Project Lowy Institute, which is based in Sydney. can Jokowi really hope to protect the economy and jobs while a health crisis breaks out? Now, this is the question, and you started answering it, Kevin. You feel like he's going down the right path. Maybe, Afu, could I ask you that from a, a young policymaker perspective? What, what, what are your thoughts at the moment? And then I'll go to our other, two, our other two speakers. Can he really hope to protect the economy and jobs while there's a health crisis in the country?
2: Yeah, I think the answer, the quick answer is no. Um, And I think it's a matter of the degree and the scale, the the magnitude of, you know, the trade-off between those two, um, right? So uh, actually, I think Policy Society, um, and just as a quick introduction, we're a network of young people in Indonesia working in the public sector. So some of our members work in ministries, uh, government agencies, some in private sector, but dealing with kind of public uh, or, yeah, public-related issues, Um, and and some in CSOs or international organizations like myself. Um, And one exercise that we tried to do um, actually just last week is kind of looking at these different um, evaluation criteria, right? To what extent can you limit the spread or the infection of the virus uh, vis-a-vis, you know, how much you want to contain the economic recession um, and thinking about the economic effects both in the short term and in the long term, right? Because um, I guess the more... Um, aggressive measures you introduce today will, you know, create a, a much bigger shock to the economy in the short term. But if it, it allows you to kind of limit the length of the spread or you know how how big the health crisis is, then it's gonna allow you give you more time in the long term to actually recover. Of the economy so so we did some of this um exercise just to kind of be thinking I mean we don't have the answer per se because it was like a one workshop exercise, uh, but I think it helps us to think about putting our shoes kind of uh, putting ourselves in the government' shoes and thinking about all these different trade offs and how what ultimately needs to be what the deci- decision makers need to be thinking about is what are the most optimum i guess the most cost effective way to contain the health outbreaks uh, vis-a-vis trying to make sure that the the economy, you know, the, I think it will be uh, affected. You know, Ministry of Finance has already issued uh, an estimate of, of uh, GDP growth decline for this year because of the crisis. But it's a matter of, you know, how much you can contain that, especially thinking about, again, the vulnerable families, right? Thinking mm-hmm. about the aspiring middle class, Um, Kevin earlier you you know mentioned the administrative advantage of using existing programs Uh, but I think at the same time there may be like new poor or new uh, vulnerable communities who are who are previously in an aspiring middle-class position who has enough income um, and and all that and, and and they they wasn't one of the beneficiaries of the uh, existing government programs, but are now vulnerable because the tourism sector is gravely affected. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all these um, online uh, based uh, services, uh, the, like the object online and all of that are also affected. So what about this new uh, poor or new, yeah, like uh, keluarga rentan and keluarga miskin, right? How, how do we target them? Especially, um, it, and this is interesting, and this has a historical connection as well, you know, Social assistance in Indonesia are or tend to be uh, provided at a family level, um, kind of with the family Hope program and all of that. But what about the the single individuals who are one might not be recorded because they don't have katepe uh, to access some of this, uh, they don't have an ID card to access some of these assistances, or because they don't belong in a family, maybe because they're a sexual minority. So there there are some of this additional uh, layer of, of vulnerable. Uh, group uh, in, in the community that might be in need of accessing this assistance but don't have access to uh, to them. So just kind of putting it out there as a, as a thought as well as part of the trade-off that we're thinking of um, in this situation. It's a great
0: point. Yeah, thank you, Afu. That's a really good point about uh, new demographics, different demographics, shifting demographics that need to be taken into consideration. Professor Nanung, what do you think? The question is, can Jokowi really hope to protect the economy and jobs while a health crisis breaks out? Yeah. Uh, tough think... question.
3: <laughs> so, sorry, Helen?
0: It's tough, tough, tough question, really. It, it's, it's a hard one to answer. We'll pop that question up on the screen again for you, Pat. Okay. And for the audience. Yeah.
3: Yeah, okay. Uh, this, this is an interesting question. Uh, if you see the, the the evidence in Indonesia nowadays, people from Jakarta or migrant people now pick to their hometown, is it the rational decision or how we can think why people still back uh, on uh, their hometown? Of course we can see if they are still living in Jakarta, for example, they don't have enough income because many migrant people uh, working based on uh, some of them working in the informal sectors, now informal sector is closed down. Uh, so then, the they, they try to decide to go uh, on their hometown, uh, since we know that some of the the, the people uh, they 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 have a big hope. When I back home, then I I the social capital Kotong Royong, in my hometown is still uh, uh, strong enough. So that's why I decided to back home. But then again, the question related to whether the Jokowi program uh, strong enough to Recover the economy due to the COVID-19. Again, it is depend on how effective program deliver to the people, uh, vulnerable people, from the vulnerable family, because they, they really hit a uh, uh, strong uh, by the COVID-19. And uh, second, and that I also want to propose or to answer the question is related that uh, are the the around 450 trillion rupiah enough. Uh, to protect the Indonesian economy since the epicentrum uh, in Jakarta and mostly in Java. And Java is the center of economic growth in Indonesia. Around uh, 50 to 90 percent of economic growth come from Java Island. So that's why, again, it is very important uh, to know how Java economies can struggle, and Java economies, uh, Java island economy, I mean, can still uh, keep maintaining the positive growth. Even, of course, the economic growth will decline drastically. Uh, are there still any room for the government to improve their economy? One uh, emphasize that I already mentioned earlier, that it's depends on the government response. Uh, if they, uh, the, the response is on the right way, to flattening the curve, we can then um, make it shorter the duration and the deep of COVID-19. But if the response of the government too late, then I will of course be a doubt whether the economic of Indonesia can immediately back to the normal. Back to 1990-1998, back to, uh, uh, it Will it took around two years after our GDP minus, then back to around forty percent growth? Uh, we plan to have a five percent point something uh, this year of our economic growth, but then uh, our economic will be hit by uh, COVID nineteen. So how long then our economic will then recover? So again, it is depend on how effective all the program directed to not only the people, but also sectors, incentive, and other more new uh, jobs that can be created by the government.
0: Thank you, Professor, and thank you, Afu. I'm going to go to another question because it, it does touch on the economics, but also uh, ties in a bit with what you were saying, Professor Nanong, about what you're seeing on campus and what you were saying, Afu, about young people and you know, they have a better lifestyle, but maybe, maybe that's now at risk, um, which will come down to including education and what's going on with education. And uh, I'm just bringing this in now because I think it might progress the conversation in a useful way. And we also have a question from the audience. Uh, Erica Tippett, who's a project manager at Monash University, asks, what areas of education and research are at risk in the economic downturn, and how can partners assist the Indonesian colleagues in recovery? I'll give you a moment to think about that. Um, Perhaps, Kevin, I'll go with you first. I know that this is something you've been keeping an eye on, but I'd be very interested to hear from our other guests as well. And just to let people know, too, that the, um, the chat line is open. So if you would like to ask a question, you can type that in to the chat box. And uh, and that will get to us, and we'll have a look at it and see if we can get it to our presenters, our, our panelists. So, Kevin, what areas of education and research are at risk in the economic downturn?
1: Well, I think um, obviously anything that's face to face is is going to have uh, some immediate difficulties. Uh, I think also though we're going to see an explosion of online uh, work. So perhaps actually the 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 digital uh, education space may actually be uh, coming into its own. It's been growing quite quickly for several years, but there may actually be space for some accelerated growth. So, as we look to the new normal after this settles, uh, we may see more of that sort of thing: uh, universities online and so forth. Um, so, I think a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of the education is is physically being closed down steadily. Uh, universities probably before others, uh, schools less so. But then a lot of people don't have access to online, so a lot of kids are simply not getting anything. And so that that'll be a major problem for those uh, for those children. On the research side, uh, there'll no doubt be a quick readjustment as, com- as universities and companies pour a lot more resources into trying to work out. Uh, how they might be able to uh, engage in research focused on dealing with this immediate crisis. So, research work that's not really able to be related to this crisis uh, across a multi, uh, many, many disciplines. So, it's, it's not just looking at the epidemiology or virology of this. It's everything. So, whether it's transport systems, economic systems, cultural systems, whatever, each can have its own aspect on this. If it's not really possible to focus. Or to see an angle on that, it may it may be that uh, that's downgraded in priority in the immediate future.
0: Afu, what are your thoughts on this education risk? Right. How can we work together? How can Australia help Indonesia? Perhaps.
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting that in terms of um, timing of, of this crisis, uh, right in the past just couple of years, actually, online learning platforms have. You know more recently flourished in Indonesia, especially for the i guess k twelve uh, levels of elementary school uh, middle high school, and so on so to to some extent in areas where the internet connectivity um, and yeah just the digital infrastructure is more reliable. Um, the disruption seems to to be contained to, to a certain degree um, I, I see videos of students learning from home um, there are some complaints from the parents uh, but that's another <laughs> uh, part that we can joke about uh, uh, but I think yeah in terms of of, of the, the the platform itself uh, to some extent there are some Learning processes that can be shifted already uh, to an e- the existing digital infrastructure, and it's interesting that some of my uh, juniors in college, uh, people I know who are still um, kind of going to university, actually say that um, to some extent the learning process has become more effective with less distractions um, in the in the classroom. Um, but maybe this is not for everyone. Maybe this is more true to the uh, to certain learning styles. Um, but in terms of research. Um, i'm guessing that it de- again depends on the discipline um, some of the research that you know can can be done or has been done um, through um, more of a kind of like desk or uh, literature based uh, work, you know, data, uh, existing database work can, can still, you know, continue. I, I myself am an economic, uh, an environmental economics researcher, and I see very minimum distraction, uh, or disruption to, um, the work that I'm working on, but I'm guessing for some disciplines, uh, that require, you know, primary data collection going through somewhere, you know, this, this, um, strict uh, yeah this this uh, constraint of, of, of being more mobile will, will affect that and um, to, to the question of how can um, the community helps I think that's um, I'm, I'm happy to, to hear uh, more ideas uh, but that's uh, definitely like a, a challenge and also I think uh, and I think this is true for many people who has have just started doing research in the past two or three months Um kind of having this existential research question as to whether my research is still relevant against this new, you know, economic crisis. Like, how can I make some of the policy recommendations that I've started writing still relevant, you know, amidst this new situation? Because it changes the whole um, economic landscape, you know, um, some of the uh, questions around, I mean, in my case, natural resources management uh, type recommendation. Like, how can we make that, still relevant or even more relevant uh, to this post-COVID situation, kind of thinking about maybe, you know, how land-based labor-intensive jobs can be a potential response to, you know, creating uh, or recovering the economy. Um, You know, anticipating maybe an exodus, I don't know if that's too big of a word, but, you know, people maybe moving back to the rural areas as they uh, lost their jobs in the city centers. so I think many researchers are are having this the same questions, right? How can I make my, you know, especially policy research, sorry, I, I had to highlight that, but it, some of the policy researchers, how can you make your, your work still relevant against this new pandemic?
0: And you mentioned then the workers moving back to the country. Professor Nanong has raised that as a concern in terms of managing the health aspect of it. And controlling the spread. Um, Is that something that's come up in your conversations? Are you you looking at that shift potentially from city to rural? Uh, You know, the annual pilgrimage, the mudik, which is going to happen Hmm. soon, is apparently already happening. Any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think, so again, timing is very interesting, right? Because this is, uh, you know, Ramadan and people are starting to to go back. Um, First and foremost, I think it's interesting that the government's not doing any, like, more stricter um, uh, limitations to to this mass movement uh, because I think the health impacts uh, can be anticipated and it's real and it can be huge. Um, uh, But I think, secondly, if this mass movement happened after Indonesia reached the peak, as to, you know, saying that if, if the... Uh, i think what i was discussing about is more on the the movement of people going back to the to the villages a little bit after um the the pandemic or the worst uh, how situation has passed so so i think that can be an interesting uh, momentum actually to start thinking about maybe you know with all these fiscal packages being allocated um, and also existing you know financing for sustainability measures maybe that new you know, movement of people from the cities to the rural areas can create a new opportunity and momentum to shift um, you know, agricultural practices to a more sustainable one, creating new job opportunities around uh, natural resources management, like around, I don't know, fire prevention, um, peatland management, water level management in the in the rural areas as a way to create jobs and kind of run the economy uh, while also, you know, using this an, as an opportunity to to use, to bring or to achieve Indonesia's own climate agenda um, at the same time. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is kind of like still a, a, a rough idea, but uh, I think there are opportunities in the rural areas, in the natural resources, uh, rich areas, to kind of um, use some of these resources in a way that also help uh, deliver sustainable outcomes mm, okay
0: look I might I might pick up on that um, and just with a question that we've had come in as well which looks at again the, the you know outside Java for instance the other parts of Indonesia um, and Professor Nanong maybe this is for you uh, from Roberta Kolzani to what degree will the economic retraction have on the internal geopolitics in Indonesia? Such as the effect on the outer regions and provinces uh, being additionally economically dislocated. I guess, yeah, what is the, the going to be the impact on those outer regions, which were already struggling or disconnected from the, the wealth of the main island of Java?
3: Yeah. Okay. As uh, I mentioned earlier, that around uh, 50 to 60 percent, uh, Java Island contribute to economic development in Indonesia, and now. We, if we see the the number of uh, positive COVID nineteen is also uh, the center of the the, the the epicenter. I mean, is still in like in Jakarta, uh, West Java, East Java. Uh, but then, if we if we look on the outside of Java, there's still a lower number of positive uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, so that's why it is very important again uh, to really protect the the uh, the area outside of the Java while they still keep maintaining their economic activity. Even it is also difficult because without interaction interaction with uh, with people, it uh, difficult uh, to to run the business and then to have an uh, to have uh, the activities. But I, I would suggest. Uh, maybe this is related to the the, the, the situation where maybe uh, they they can start producing by uh in small small scale small scale uh, call creative uh, creative uh economy i would say uh, they can base from the household and then uh, base uh, on from from the household and then a community uh even they can even they don't interact each other, but can be still managed by one voluntary managing all this activity. Just give an example: the need of the mask now is is uh, quite huge. Why don't try uh, the, the 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 household that have a uh, capacity to produce uh, this one, then can can be uh, can be produced uh, like mass and then uh, sold uh, be sold in, in in the in Jakarta or in in Java Island where the COVID 19
0: Okay. your screen's frozen. That that internet is being um, overloaded everywhere. But that was good. Thank you, Professor Nanong. Uh, So many questions are coming in. We can't answer all of them. I'm sorry. I think two perhaps that we can finish on. Uh, One is around infrastructure. The government, of course, had huge plans for infrastructure investment in Indonesia uh, this year. Um, I'll get a brief response on that, and then uh, close, I guess, to the relationship between Australia and Indonesia is the impact on tourism. And in Bali, in particular, we've heard of, of the devastating consequences of not having tourists. So, the question there is around you know, is when would we likely to see anything like that get back to normal? I'll just get two quick, res- um, two questions and some quick responses from you all. Uh, just because we're running out of time mainly, but I want to get those in. So firstly, infrastructure, Kevin Evans?
1: Uh, look, I, I suspect this is not what we saw in terms of the new economic package is not the last. Uh, there will be additional readjustments of investment priorities. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see some of those kind of, of investments, even on infrastructure, although they're still arguing they're going to push forward I wouldn't be surprised to see some uh, shunting back uh, in order to provide more immediate support to the current uh, urgent situation.
0: Mm. Uh, Afu you can answer one, both, or none at all, (laughs) if you choose. Infrastructure, of course, huge area for public policy.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, Yeah, I think it it really depends. I think... um, also, when we're thinking about infrastructure, I guess if we're thinking about how to leverage uh, village fund, for example, to build infrastructure in the rural areas in a way that can help generate again rural jobs and and which will be critical um, after uh, I mean as part of the bouncing back uh, the economy. Um, but I'm guessing large infrastructure projects, you know, finding allocating resources would be difficult at the, in terms of the state budget and uh, you know bringing more investment from from uh, foreign um, uh, will also be challenging, so I, I think it really depends. We have to break down the infrastructure conversation into several subsectors. Yeah,
0: fair comment. And just on the the Bali uh, comment, which may seem flippant, but it's not because no. it has such a, a wide impact. I mean, I'm just reading a question here: Our school is provided for underprivileged children in Sumba Island, and every year we send sixty students to resorts and hotels in Bali. Our school is now closed and with no real time, we don't understand when will we open in the future and our alumni have been sent back by their employers. Is there any rough prediction when the economic situation can be better again? And that just sums up just one of the challenges facing the country. Professor Nanong. any thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, based on many predictions that the peak of this COVID-19 in Indonesia will be... Either uh, June or July, so uh, I predicted out three months afterward we' still trying to normalize all economic activity, so hopefully by at least the la- last quarter of this year we start uh, to recover our economy. so I uh, highly put emphasis for uh, friends in Australia, uh, please come to Indonesia in Bali particularly or other uh, tourist destination, once we get a normal again. Of course, the tourist is one of the, the biggest uh, sector that hit by uh, COVID-19. Hotel, restaurants, and other uh, art and, and, and uh, related uh, job to tourism. Transportation, logistics, now it's uh, getting down.
0: And finally, Kevin, are your predictions on how long it will take Indonesia to get through this?
1: Well, I think uh, much of it is going to depend on how the actual the health side is going to be managed. Um, I have to say there was a bit of criticism that the government hasn't kind of put military on the roads to stop people moving, uh, much as, say, they did in India. I think what the Indonesian government's been doing is actually setting in place mechanisms so people feel comfortable about staying where they are. So those new welfare, the social safety net programs, frankly, have to be put in place before you then start really trying to stop people moving. Uh, they've also worked quite assiduously with the religious groups uh, to get them to you know, pray at home uh, and also uh, to reduce mixing of, uh, of people in big groups, even during this Ramadan period, which is, of course, where there's much more frenetic exchange and movements and gatherings of people. So I think they're setting up a, a really very important uh, period of time for this country uh, in dealing with the problem. I think we saw in China it really got out of hand because they didn't, they didn't act fast enough to try to slow down the traditional annual movements associated with Chinese New Year. Uh, in India, they just basically pulled the shutters down before any kind of program of support for people who are suddenly now going to be out of work with nowhere to live, nowhere to eat. Uh, that was put in place, I think, a bit abruptly before there was a social safety net. So I think they've been putting that in, in place here. Now, people are still going to be, you know, leaking out to go back to the villages. So I think very much it depends not so much just on on turning the curve, but actually getting it much, much lower. Uh, before we can see much of an opening. And I, my sense is towards the end of the year, uh, we might start to be in a position where people may feel comfortable uh, about moving about once again. But I don't think uh, in, the media, in the immediate period, we'll probably need to see how it goes through to Ramadan and beyond, into, into post-Ramadan. Uh, I suspect we may be needing uh, some additional uh, fiscal support programs At this stage, the value of the one announced yesterday, uh, last week, was really about two, two and a half percent of of GDP. What Australia has done, I think, catches up more towards about eight to 10 percent. So, what the country's done was a great start, but there may still be, and I think it has capacity to actually do a bit more because levels of debtedness are relatively modest and manageable.
0: Great. Thank you, Kevin. And that's where we'll have to leave our conversation for today. Unfortunately, uh, so much more we could ask of our panellists. I'd like to thank Kevin Evans from the Australia-Indonesia Centre, our Jakarta-based director. Aditya Utami, who's co-founder of the Think Policy Society, a group of young policy professionals in Indonesia. Thank you so much and lovely to have you join us. And Professor Nanung Nuyatono from uh, the Dean of the Economics and Management at Bogor's IPBFB University. Thank you very much, Professor nolan for your time too. I know you all are incredibly busy and we do value it. And uh, we were, we're sure to get you on again in the near future. So thank you. And thank you uh, also for joining us, for taking such an interest uh, in this discussion. We're going to hold another In Conversation in about three weeks' time. Uh, So Pencil in Wednesday, April the 29th, into your calendars. And we are going to look at coronavirus again, but this time from a public health policy perspective, Um, having a look at some of those health measures and getting a conversation between Australia and Indonesia on perhaps where can we work together? How can we help each other? How can we learn from each other about what is going on? So I hope you can join me then. And of course, in the meantime, log on to our website, get in touch with us. Uh, We provide information on a regular basis and uh, we'd love to have you join in our community. Thank you very much.